Dr. Isabel Hansen is the 2022 BHP John Monash Scholar Award winner. She's an award-winning general practitioner and academic with a passion for community health, policy implementation, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. She's completed a Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery from the University of Sydney, and a Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Arts with first class honours from the University of New South Wales. She's currently studying at Oxford University in the field of translational health sciences, where she hopes one day to return to Australia and use her knowledge to help make improvements to Australia's health system. Isabel, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Justin, and thanks for that kind introduction. Okay, so you're at Oxford. What's it like over there in England? Uh, Oxford's really great. Um, the things that I love about it are the UK has seasons. That's something Australia doesn't have as strongly. So you mm. get October and you get this beautiful transition as sort of the winter arrives and snow starts to fall on the ground and sort of winds whistling through the cobbled streets. It's really beautiful. And now we're seeing that turn into spring where these little purple crocuses are popping up out of the grass and it's sort of the birds are singing more loudly. It's really gorgeous here. Um, and, and, of course, the Oxford intellectual environment is like nothing I've ever experienced. You Just everywhere you go, there's someone who is deeply passionate about whatever they're working on and wants to discuss it with you and share ideas and get to know other people who are passionate about their work. So, yeah, it's a it's a huge privilege. Uh, that said, I really miss Australia. There's nothing quite do like you, home. What do you miss? What do you miss about Australia? I'm keen to know. Oh, um, I mean, so many things. This, I mean, the sunshine is going to be that. The sunshine's different here. It's this sort of more gentle, faded sun. Whereas back home, you get that beautiful, bright sun. I miss the birds. I miss little rainbow mm. lorikeets twittering the around. Starters, the noise. Oh. I miss the ocean. My favourite thing to do is to swim in the ocean. And, you know, the, the Thames here is it's very pretty, but you, know, you probably yes. don't want to swim in it. You're painting um, a very nice picture of the English weather. Every time I turn on the TV show and see England, it's grey and dreary and wet. It, I th I, it's an amazing <laughs> I think I think the the Swedish say this that there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. So mm. you get privatised to the UK by getting your big long Wellington boots and your big rain jacket, and you just go out in all weather. Um, but I, that said, I, I do miss Australia, and of course, the thing I miss the most is the community and you know the people I love back home and the Australian way of life. So um, mm. I look forward to coming home to visit for the. We've got a Monash Symposium in uh, December this year, so I look forward to being back for that. Well, let's talk about what brought you to the UK. Obviously, it's the John Monash Foundation Scholarship, but I'm, I'm keen to know what you're doing over there and what's involved in your work and studies. Yeah, um, so I'm really fortunate to have received a Monash Scholarship for three years to come over to Oxford to study um, with my sort of academic research hero. Her name's Professor Trish Greenhog. She uh, is a GP uh, social science researcher and really leading the field of translational health sciences. 
in, in what is translational health sciences? This is the question everybody asks me. It's funny when you're mm. in Oxford. Are you the a first... translator? <laughs> <laughs> the first question anyone asks in Oxford is, what are you studying? And you go, oh, translational health sciences, and then you have to explain what that is. And they go, um, oh, right, yeah, that's, yeah. Like, what is that? <laughs> what, what are you talking about, right? Uh, so it's, it's a new field. This degree is three years old, and what it's looking at is how do we implement things in healthcare at the at the human level we're really good in the medical sciences at doing the kind of benchtop research where we do big randomized control trials we use statistical methods to determine significance and then we work out whether a particular drug works we, we're great yeah. at that and we that down really important field of knowledge what we're less good at is taking the knowledge of what works whether that be a new drug or a new system like you know, remote service delivery using video consultations or uh, a new way of funding uh, policy or a new way of delivering programs and then actually making that work on the ground through policy and implementation through systems. So this degree is targeted at helping people in the health field use systems thinking and complexity theory to do the messy work of translating good evidence about what works into practical outcomes. Mm. Basically telling the politicians, okay, this is what we need to make this work. Give bozos. But I'm 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 very uh, yeah, it's it's a for me the bit that really excites me is the bit of being able to be simultaneously on the ground, understanding what the challenges are for all of the health system. But as you mentioned, I'm really passionate about Indigenous health in Australia. And then being able to be in the rooms with the people making decisions and help give them a structure about how a really good intervention might be implemented and might be effective and what needs to happen next to make positive change. It's a, it's a really, really cool degree. I'm loving my experience here, not just the content, but also the people I'm meeting. There's people from all over the yeah, world. How many, how many people are, are, are in your cohort? Oh, it's pretty small. It's about 36 and it's a mm. mix um, people from, you know, every that there's a there's a, de- a dentist from Ghana. There's a life science lawyer from the Ukraine. Uh, there's people from the NHS here. Uh, there's you know pretty much every you know there's a GP who's setting up um, new health insurance methodologies in Brazil. There's people from all over the world, and we all come together mm. and talk out practically about how to make things work it's really and it's we all know each other we're all knowledge You're making sharing. some making some new friends yeah 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 absolutely oxford's all about that making new friends and i'm really lucky I've, I've been doing some other things as well as my studies so as part of the uh, business school and mba program they run a thing called impact lab which is all about uh, social entrepreneurship and impact investing so i go and hang out with the business students twice a week and we talk about how do you fund these kind of innovative health innovations and make them happen practically. Uh, I do French classes on Thursday. That's what I was doing before our call this morning. Um, So, yeah, it's a a really great place to meet people, make new friends. Do you have any spare time at all to, you know, just chill out on the lounge? (laughs) Um, Yeah, actually, I do. I'm pretty passionate about rest and I think if you don't rest and you don't give yourself opportunity to reflect, you just barrel through life and you miss it. So, yeah, yeah, I 
I've definitely, you know, this term, we have, Oxford has three terms and this is the middle term, it's called Hillary. My, my dance card is definitely full for this term. <laughs> um, I, I'm still a, a big advocate for building in space for rest and renewal. And so what is the, um, what's the plan? Have you, um, you were telling me off air that you potentially are about to embark on a PhD. Yeah. Um, so I'm really grateful. I've been um, offered a spot in the primary care DPhil program, which is a PhD, but at Oxford here. And I'm wanting to look at new youth mental health models. So here in the UK, 44% of young people, 13 to 25, meet the criteria for a mental health diagnosis. And we know mm. back in Australia, it's the... Very high. It's very high. And, and, and it's, it, it's, it's tending the same way back home. We don't have that data quite yet in Australia, but we know that youth suicide is the number one leading cause of death. And we know that there's mm. increasing rates of anxiety and depression. And this is particularly true in some Aboriginal communities um, and so we need new models and we need to think about both preventative care and we need to think about timely and effective access to treatment that suit the needs of young people. And so Australia already does some great things with Headspace and, um, you know, Patrick yes. McGarrett yep. and Hickey, wonderful things there. But a lot of people come to general practice. The, you know, most young people, we are the first point of call for support when they are having a mental health crisis and so we need mm. to have a really good approach from primary care and I'm planning to do some research looking at our two health systems and how we can build that for the future. So as a doctor as a GP have you um, experienced that firsthand where young people have actually come to you that have been struggling and you've been able to help them? Yeah yeah absolutely it's it's one of the most challenging and rewarding parts of my job um so I, I've I've always had an interest in mental health. I, my, that, my science degree is in psychology and I've done some extra training and counselling because I just see it so much young people, the pressures on them, the social media is huge in terms of body image, bullying, just totally mm. changing standards and, and sort of then the impacts of COVID, people being kept inside, not getting those key development points of changing years in high school or, you know, primary to high school and then going into university. They lost all these essential years of social development and confidence building. And then just the levels of uncertainty, you know, we've got cost of living crises. People are seeing their families doing it harder. It's harder for them to get into work. There's so many pressures on young people and we need to be looking at how do we prevent this from happening and how do we improve the future? So in my clinical practice, I see the full range of people who come in going, I'm not coping at school, to a parent brings them in because they're worried, to eating disorders, and then into some of the more upsetting stuff like self-harm and thinking about suicide. And it's a real pleasure to accompany young people on that journey and help them to get well. But there's so much demand. We need more than just with, with GPs holding people's hands as they go through the journey, we need a more comprehensive system to wrap around them and support them in schools, in homes, in the community, how then they interact with mental health systems if they need further care with a psychiatrist and then thinking about how they engage with challenging things like social media that are really changing the, the landscape of what it is to be a young person. I mean, it's a, it's an excellent point you make because there are there are so many pressures on the young people 
uh, today. Is it, are we doing enough in the schools, Isabel, from, from a young age to, to help teenagers or is there more work to be done there? Uh, I think teachers are, it's just, the, the, it's the most important job in society. <laughs> I mean, I know, you know, being a prime minister is an important job, but teachers are the backbone of mm. our I'm married to one. Oh, good, beautiful, good. <laughs> you can, you can, you can tell them I said that. I know. Yes, I they, should, they should be the best paid and the most respected people in the community because they are doing so much already. Not only are they doing all that pastoral care that you know goes sort of unseen and unnoticed because it's one on one, but there's also great things in the curriculum now around mindfulness and there's lots of good anti-bullying programs. There's been lots more mental health education. There are some really good charities that go into schools now and talk about mental health awareness. So I think schools are doing a really good job, but they're already hugely stretched with the curriculum and they're all exhausted after COVID. Yes. And the the tidal wave of impact coming through sort of social media, cost of living pressures, COVID impacts, I think is bigger than a school, just the school system can answer. And the whole point of my PhD, my DPhil, will be doing uh, youth engagement and participation work from the very beginning, so which means doing the research project by talking to young people at the very start and going, tell us what is happening, tell us what's mm. wrong. Don't tell you what mental health is. You tell us what's making you unwell and we'll try and structure a society that's healthier for you. So that's the bit. So for those parents that might be listening to this, what are some of the warning signs, I suppose, that they could pick up on that would trigger for them, you know what, I, I need some professional help here. Let's um, let's go to the local doctor just for some expert advice. Yeah, I, I, I think looking for the key signs of either anxiety or depression. So those things are going to be like changes in sleep patterns or difficulty sleeping, um, emotional and social withdrawal you know all teenagers can with adults can be a bit withdrawn and grumpy that's part of their development but if they're withdrawing I've got two of them yes yes, <laughs> yes you know them and I know as being a GP you know they don't all it takes a lot of rapport building until they want to talk to me but mm. If they're withdrawing from their friends, if they're withdrawing from school, if they're having emotional outbursts that are not usually within, I mean, you know, again, teenagers, it's a big hormonal time. It's tough on everyone. They're going to be emotional outbursts. But if there's concerns about them being consistently low or very anxious or having any of those signs, it's time to have a talk to them and get some extra support. That can be through a school counsellor, that can be through visiting a headspace, looking at some resources online and just sitting down and having a, having a yarn with your teenager about what's going on for them. You can always come to a GP. That is part of our role. You know, we see about, you know, between one in three and one and a half of people who come to see a GP, there's some kind of mental health component. So we're all very skilled and trained. Really? Mm, that's interesting. It's more common than people think and we are all trained in being able to provide a supportive approach so my advice to to parents would be looking out for the signs seeking help and having conversations early and if you're concerned that your your child is maybe anxious or depressed or even struggling with school or refusing to go to school you can always go to your local gp and we'll be able to offer some more support but is there um i'm keen to know your expert advice on whether you think that there's 
a stigma with going to the GP if the parent takes the child to the GP, if that's seen as some sort of um, failure on, on their behalf. Oh, gosh, no. I, I mean, I can see how a really caring, conscientious parent might think that if their child isn't doing well, that reflects on them. But mm. even as you were asking that question, I was wondering where it was going because you just don't think that way. That that would mm. be like saying to someone who is an adult who's depressed, well, you should know better and not have let yourself get depressed. It just happens. It's part, you know, some people, there's there's a genetic disposition for some people, it's in their family, but for some people they might have no background in it, but it's circumstance, you know. they. I talk to people a lot about how anxiety and depression happens and it's yeah. usually the pattern of, you know, you get overwhelmed, you've got internal voices that are being very self-critical, maybe a bit perfectionist, and you've got some external environments that are causing you to be more self-critical. Maybe there's bullying or other external factors. And then when you spend a long period of time with your system in overdrive, being anxious and being in this kind of fight or flight state, when you like that for a long period of time, eventually your body shuts down and says, I can't do this anymore. Right. And that's yeah. people get depressed and start having those morbid thoughts or thoughts that they're not worthy or they're not loved. And that's just what happens to the body when we put it under stress for long enough. There's no shame. Mm. There's no stigma. Um, and it's certainly not a failing on a parent if their child's not coping. It's a sign mm. of good parenting, I think, if they're seeking support early. I would agree. Yes, I would agree. Well, what what sparked your love of um, medicine? If we, if we wind the clock back, Isabel, uh, did you did you dive straight into your medical degree after leaving year twelve? No, no, I had a totally different path. I'm I'm a bit of an oddball in that I'm more of the social sciencey sort of person. So yes, um, so tell us how did it all unfold for you? Well, I I actually my favourite subject in school was economics because I had a um, this sort of radical economics teacher with curly white hair who used to twirl his curls in his index finger and tell us that if you know how to bake the pie, you know how to divide it up more evenly. So mm. where'd you uh, go to school? I went to Skeg Redlands, actually, um, okay. yeah. which is a school in Neutral Bay. Uh, oh, come on. It's a great school. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a great education there. And so I um, went to university and did psychology and political economy, thinking I would do something in the mental health space, but also thinking about policy. And then I went down to Canberra and I worked in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet for a couple of years doing policy, strategic policy um, under mm -hmm. the governments and while I was there I loved the work it was so intellectually stimulating but I wasn't satisfied with not being connected with community I'd started doing a lot of community work with an organization through Life for Curry Kids um, and I really missed working with children and young people and uh, being on seeing what life was like and I, I didn't want to just be in an office writing documents so I started volunteering yes. in the, on the paediatric ward of Canberra Hospital and realised that I was looking forward to my shifts more than I was my day job sometimes. So I, um, I, I said, oh, look, I, I, I resigned from my job with some notice and, and my policy mentor there said to me, you'll be back. You love this system setting stuff. I know you want to be a doctor, but you're meant to do this policy work. And he was completely right. I went to medical school and I loved it and I love being a GP and I found that work really meaningful and I see how powerful it is to be able to contribute to good policy that changes the system. And so that's mm. 
kind of what I'm doing here at Oxford. I'm trying to build a bridge between those um, those two parts of my life. And have you ever considered, this might um, come out of the blue, what about a career in politics yourself? <laughs> um, <laughs> you'd be sna- like you'd have both sides of politics <laughs> trying to chase you down for um, to, to be on their teams, I would have thought. That's very kind, Justin. Thank you. Um, I think I'm going to reveal that I shouldn't be in politics by my inability to give a good um, neutral political answer to that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Very well said. I think that one, I think the, I mean, the answer to that is it would be a privilege and an honour to be a representative of the Australian public in some kind of role. I'm um, probably, I'm not ready to do it yet. I've got more to learn and more to contribute in this space. Um, and and I'm also I, th- I think you've got to be really tough. I'm actually reading Julia Gillard's um, biography at the moment, and mm. gosh, she was a woman of strength and character. I had the privilege of working for her when I was like you know little twenty one year old baby working in the PMNC uh, down in Canberra. Mm. She's just exceptional, and and I think um, I'm not sure I have the disposition because I, I I'm 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 a softy. I'm a big softy. <laughs> I feel like in politics you've got to be made of tougher stuff. Um, but maybe, maybe one day when I, you know, decades. There's room. Now, there's room for everyone in public yeah, life. Okay, if they're taking applications from uh, idealist softies, I'll um, I'll think about it in a few decades. <laughs> so in terms, of, so in terms of your study, what's the what's the timetable? When do you think you you might finish all of all of that up if um, all things are equal and and go to plan? So I'm currently in the finishing off the master's and my master's dissertation that will end in um, August of this year. And then uh-huh. I'll commence the DPhil in October of this year and that will be a further three years. So that would be 2026. Oh, really? 2026, However, yes. I don't want to stay away that long. I've, um, I've, I've discussed with my supervisor about making sure that I come back to Australia for at least three months of each year so that I can continue to do general practice work in remote Aboriginal communities so I can stay connected to my friends and family, the primary care community, and also the Sydney Redfern Life for Kuri Kids community. And, um, yeah, also just keep myself sane, not be here for too many winters. So, um, oh, I can see the attraction of coming home. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, Australia will always be my home. So um, that would be a really, if that all works out, that would be a really lovely balance of being able to learn and connect and um, contribute here, but also bring all of those skills and benefits back home um, to our community. So I'm hoping that all will work out. So tell us about the work you're doing um, with Koori Kids and what sparked your deep passion for working in Indigenous health. Yeah, gladly. Um, so in 2009, when I was uh, finishing off undergrad, uh, a friend invited me to this breakfast club called Life for Koori Kids. And um, it's every Saturday morning in the inner city of Sydney and 9am there's a big fry up of breakfast foods and then from about 10, 11 o'clock there's games with the kids and then you wrap up around lunchtime and that's it and you do it every week. And I just fell in love with it because on the, on the sort of immediate surface level you see just the, the joy of playing with kids and being in a community with people who really care and, um, you know, more interested in doing something sort of like you know they're not then these people don't go shopping on their weekends you know they're they're yeah, out with yeah. having a good time uh in the sunshine but the deeper level is what has been the gift and I've got way more out of it than I've ever put in which is twofold the first one 
is that this is the collective model of community healing I think we need to move towards where we're not setting up organisations in a sort of superior helping role, helping the vulnerable, but just people being together. You know, the volunteers will bring their kids and they play with all the other kids and people help each other because we're a community, not because it's a handout. And there's been beautiful things happen there. You know, like I think about Ben, who uh, was six years old when I met him and his parents sadly weren't able to be around anymore and his sister was helping to raise him and he had speech troubles and he wasn't doing well at school and he had some sort of, you know, angry behaviours, of course, because he lost his parents and he just got wrapped around with love and support and that kind of came in every form from... You know, just weekends of the same people showing up, giving him love, showing him showing him that he was worthy to dentist trips, to help with speech pathology, to getting him into good schools, to supporting his sister who was giving him care that was both, you know, excellent in the family and provided by the Aboriginal community. And he's now the most beautiful 19-year-old man who's, you know, six foot four. And it still freaks me out when I see him on the street. He gives me a hug. Because he's <laughs> like, you're a giant. Oh, wow, you're a giant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and... There's so many kids who are in the program like that. And I really think that's the way we need to go. We need to go away from a handout model and more towards a model of community responsibility for each other. We all belong to each other. And that's 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 where I think that that's what I think we need as a society. And the second thing is just how exceptional the Kuru community are. They're, they are a picture of resilience and I, you know, I grew up in a, you know, you know, middle-class community with white picket fences where at the end of every day, everyone locks themselves away and watches TV and eats with their family. But you go hang out with the Aboriginal community and they are the most generous, warm, welcoming people. And they have a wicked sense of humor. (laughs) And it's just, it's just the ray of sunshine and joy and everything that that community has been through with poverty and dispossession and racism, they're still there surviving and thriving. And, you know, it's just such a pleasure to get to know those families and yeah it's inspired me to do a lot of the work that I'm doing now from from afar are you able to make any um commentary or do you have an opinion on the strengths and weaknesses of Australia's healthcare system at the moment yeah um i think there's it's been very interesting for me coming to the UK and getting to see the NHS up close and understand some of the challenges that they're having here and what's that look like after decades of austerity. It's really better down my passion for committing to a a well-funded, well-organised public healthcare system um, because I think you can, you can slowly strip that away and privatise it and the myth that privatisation makes things more efficient just isn't correct in healthcare. It's I can see how it's correct in um, market goods where there's, you know, all the sort of classic economic comparisons of substitutability and market clearance. It's not the case in healthcare and it's been really interesting seeing how the NHS is struggling here. Back home in Australia, Medicare is one of our great national gifts but it's also 40 years old and it needs a tune-up. I'm really excited to see the interest and support of the incumbent Albanese government on working to update Medicare, particularly around primary care, because the way primary care is going is the bulk billing services are disappearing. It's now costing to see a GP and that is not a public health system if people have to pay to go and start making decisions around, well, maybe I'll pay for rent 
or food and not to see the doctor because I'm sick. That's actually mm. more experience in the more expensive in the long term because then people show up in emergency and it's, you know, something like two thousand. That's right. Yeah. Much cheaper to see a GP. So I think the 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 stuff I'd really like to see coming out of some of the funding work is um a shift towards acknowledging the complexity of care that occurs in general practice as we've become more technologically and scientifically and medically advanced people are living longer fantastic we've got more treatments for people who are unwell fantastic but what that means is there's all these people who are alive walking around with really complex illnesses that are living longer not ending up in hospital and going to see their local doctors the other side of it is the mental health side which we were talking about nobody wants to go and see a gp for three to four minutes if they're depressed and need to be really listened to and supported so Mm. There needs to be more work put into how we fund primary care so that when things are easy to be done quickly, a script, a referral, a quick checkup for something simple that is remunerated adequately and fairly and done efficiently. But when there is complex care for chronic disease, comorbidities or mental health, that there's time and funding to support that so that people are getting the care they need in staying out of hospital. So... I'm, cont- I'm I'm very passionate about really investing in our public healthcare system, and I'm really looking forward to rolling up my sleeves and getting involved in policy back home someday. And I think we would welcome you with open arms when the t- when the time is right for you, Isabel. We're out of time. Amazing to catch up with you. Fantastic to hear your insights. Best of luck with your studies, and we hope to see you back home in Australia at some point soon. All the best and good luck. Thanks so much, Justin.